You're listening to a four-part series about the cross taught by Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel, Crook County. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Sir Isaac Newton said, To every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. It's called the, the law of reciprocal actions. I'm sure you're familiar with it, at least practically speaking, in that if you throw a ball against a wall, it comes back to you. That is Isaac's law. If you push on something with equal force, it's pushing back against you. It's pretty simple to understand. And the cross, the action demands an equal and opposite reaction. The most powerful action in human history, it demands an equal and opposite reaction or response on our part. And talking about the reason for the cross in our first study in this series, we talked about the fact that the cross came as a result of God's holiness. That when we look at the cross, not only do we see man's sinfulness, but we also see God's holiness. And one of the main purposes for the cross, you guys, is the glory of God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul essentially tells us that Jesus died so that we could glorify Him. So that we could live for Him. You could boil it down and say that Jesus died for His glory. That's not something that we normally hear, is it? It's not something that you normally would say. That the cross was for the glory of God. But it is certainly true. This idea that the, the cross is all about me, that it's for me, it's to meet all my needs, it kind of fits in very well with the man-centered gospel that we are taught so often with this me-centered Christianity where it's all about me, where church is about me and my needs and what am I getting out of it and what did my kids get and I didn't like the seats or I didn't like the sound, it was too loud or it wasn't loud enough or the pastor wasn't funny enough or I couldn't find a parking space or the, the bathrooms weren't convenient or whatever and it's all about me, it's me, it's me. And even the books that are written today and Christian circles are all about me. And the gospel becomes nothing more than a self-help pill to take. Gospel becomes nothing more than self-centered doctrine to give you a better life. And we know that that's not the case at all. In fact, the cross is one of the most powerful instruments of bringing God glory. And if you look at John chapter 12, we actually see that Jesus says that the cross will bring glory to himself. Earlier on in verse 12 through about verse 19, we see the triumphal entry. We see Jesus on this particular day. This is Palm Sunday this morning. On this particular day, Jesus mounted a, a foal of a donkey and he rode down the Mount of Olives. And of course, there were mobs of people shouting praises and Hosanna in the highest. This is the son of David. This was the, the promised Messiah. They were so stoked. They were waving palm branches, which was a, a symbol of, of a king in a celebration of his arrival. They were laying their, their clothes in the road in, in symbolism of their worship to him. And yet these very same people, less than a week later, would be saying, crucify him, crucify him. But it was on this day that Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. His heart 
set like a flint toward the cross. And there were certain Greeks, verse 20, among those who came up to worship at the feast. Remember, this is the feast of Passover. Jesus was crucified as our Passover lamb. And there were Greeks there who had come to worship, converts to Judaism. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They had heard about Jesus. They had heard about this rabbi who was healing people, who was teaching these amazing things, not like the scribes and the Pharisees who were quoting people all the time. Jesus was speaking with conviction and with authority. And they heard about him and they wanted to meet him. They went to Philip, one of the disciples, and Philip went to Andrew and together they went to Jesus. And they're like, hey, there's some guys that want to see you. And I think it's really a cool study to look at the questions or the the times in the Bible where things are requested of Jesus. And look at how he responds and how he reacts to these questions and to these requests. Look at how he responds to this request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Hey, Jesus, there's some guys that want to see you. How would you respond? Hey, what's going on? What can I do for you? What does Jesus say? The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Probably wasn't exactly what they were expecting to hear. The hour is coming that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus had his eyes, his mind, his heart set like a flint toward the cross. And they said, we want to see Jesus. What does Jesus say? Well, the most powerful way that you will see me is in my glorification, which is going to happen at the cross. Jesus actually would teach us that the cross would bring glory to God. And that's why God allows suffering and difficulties to come into our life, because it's through that that we bring glory to God the same way. But here Jesus will take that truth and he will give us a little bit of an idea of how this works in our life. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. The concept is when you put a seed in the ground, in order for it to become what it was intended to become, that is, that plant, that crop, it has to first die. The seed actually dies. Then it can produce much fruit. But if it doesn't die, it remains alone. And that's true in our own lives as well. Apart from death, as we're going to talk about this morning, apart from death to self, there is no fruit in our life. There is no purpose. Jesus says that very thing in verses 25 and 26 as he says, He who loves his life will lose it. If you love your life and you want to cling on to it and you want to hold on to it, you'll lose your life. And he who hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. In other words, if you're willing to set your own life aside, this, this life of the flesh, then you will gain eternal life. And you will become the person that God has called you to be. You'll, you'll produce that fruit. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. How do we respond to the cross appropriately? How do we bring God glory through our lives? How do we bring about the fruit that Jesus intended as he talks about here? How do we give that natural, equal, and opposite reaction to the cross? Jesus has initiated. He performed an action at the cross. 
And now, in our lives, the law of reciprocal action comes to play. That there is a reasonable response to the cross. Just like when you throw a ball against a wall, you expect it to come back to you. And if it didn't, you would be shocked because it's, it's a law. It has to happen. The same is true. As we look at the cross, it demands a response from us. And when there's no response to the cross, it doesn't make sense. It defies logic. And as we look at the cross, we either reject it or we accept it. Those are our only two choices. There's no neutrality in regard to the cross. And so I think a, a first response to the cross, it's pretty obvious. And that is to believe. That's the first appropriate response to the cross. And many of you here already believe and have already received the work of the cross. But I don't ever want to assume that we're all believers. And so the first response has to be to receive it into your life to believe unto salvation. If you turn back in John to chapter 1 and you look at verse 12 and you look at what John says, he says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Now notice that you have to receive Jesus. He made the action, but there is a response that is demanded on our part to receive Him. Because we've been given the right, the privilege, the opportunity to become children of God. Now what do you notice about that? What I notice is that we aren't children of God apart from Jesus Christ. Many would teach us that we're all children of God. We're born as children of God and we just kind of have to find out who we are. And No, the Bible teaches that we're born as enemies of God. That we're born opposed to God, separated from God. He's given us the right, the privilege, the opportunity to be children of God because of the cross. But we have to believe and appropriate His work into our life. Otherwise, we're still enemies of the cross. We're still enemies of Jesus. We're still opposed to God. There's no neutral place. You're either for me or you're against me, Jesus said. And so if you're not a believer here this morning, you're opposed to God. You're living under the wrath of God. You're living in opposition to God. And as much as you want that to not be the case, it is the case. Until you bend the knee, in other words, until you turn your life over to Him, and you humble yourself, and you recognize that you have nothing to offer Him by way of righteousness or goodness, that you can't approach God on your own efforts, that it's impossible, that there's nobody good enough, that we all fall short of the glory of God, see? The purpose of our life is to bring glory to God. We can't do it on our own, so we do it by way of the cross, which was the ultimate expression of glory to God. But if we have not received the work of the cross, then our life is bringing shame to God. We're opposed to God. And so we have to believe. That's the first thing, is to believe toward salvation. Romans 10.9 says that if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ and confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now this idea of belief is something that gets confused, I think, quite often. Because we think belief is just coming to a mental assent, believing the facts. Just like I believe that when I turn the key in my truck, the engine starts. I believe that. But that's not the kind of belief 
that we're talking about here. There's a lot of things I believe, but they don't change my life. They don't bring fruit. There's really no demonstration. Even the the very law of reciprocal actions, to every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. I believe that, but it doesn't change my life. The gospel is different, you guys. It's not a scientific theory. It's not something you read in a book. It's not a billboard. It's not an advertising campaign. The gospel is something that when you believe it, when you come to a place where you agree with the truth, it will radically change your life. Not that you radically change your life, but it will. God will. By very nature of the Holy Spirit coming into your life, and your old man being put to death, and the new man being raised to life, it will change you. You don't have to work at it, it just happens. It's a natural byproduct. And so when you place faith in Jesus, and when you say, I believe in what he did on the cross, and that I need that personally, there is a change that will take place. Now that isn't something that we have to drum up or work toward, as many would tell us. It's a natural byproduct of the work that he's doing in our life as we read in uh, Ephesians 2.10 that the works that he has for us have already been created we just have to walk in them but if you look at your life and you say yeah I'm a believer I, I'm a Christian I mean I'm American right I, I accepted Jesus at a retreat 1983 I'll never forget it no there, there will be change it's not just saying you believe something your life will, will demonstrate it. God's given you the right, the opportunity, but you have to put your faith in that. And when you do, as James tells us, there will be works that accompany it because faith without works is dead. Belief without demonstration is just simply acknowledging some facts. And that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. The gospel's powerful. And so the first thing, the most obvious response is belief. And if you haven't done that, if you have not placed belief in Jesus Christ, if you have not placed your faith in Him and recognized that, look, I'm a sinner. I'm going nowhere fast. I'm carrying all this guilt, this condemnation. I've got nowhere to put it. If you realize that and you recognize that and you want to receive Jesus into your life, it's very simple. It's not complicated. Please don't mistake what I said for complication. It's very simple, in fact. And the fruit will just come. And I remember when I gave my life to Christ, there were, there were just things that were falling off of me that had nothing to do with me. There were things that were becoming a part of my life that I, I didn't have anything to do with. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a struggle either, because it's a, a daily battle. But you just come. You believe, and you believe that it will change your life. And you want that. If you do want that, it's for you. It's available to you, very simply. We have people that are up here after service to pray with you. And they, they can pray with you to receive Christ. A second appropriate response to the cross is summed up in the word go. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, flip back just a little bit. The last words of Jesus to his followers, Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20 it's called the Great Commission. Famous words of Jesus. The last words of people are always famous. Maybe you remember a loved one who passed away their last words. And you will always remember those. These were Jesus' last words to us. And they weren't, go and be happy. 
They weren't go and have all of your felt needs taken care of. They weren't go and make lots of money. Go and be comfortable. Go and find a church that will meet all of your needs. Where the pastor tickles your ears and tells you what you want to hear. And Go and find a hobby that you can pour yourself into and waste your whole life away doing it. Go and work yourself into exhaustion and never have time to serve me. Or you fill in the blank of what many of our lives are defined by or what many people tell us the gospel is. Jesus says, go and do this apparently. No, this is what he told us to do. He said, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the means by which we do it. This is the confidence we have is that he has given us authority. And he says, go therefore and do what? He's telling you to go. That's the command. And he says, make disciples of all the nations. Go make disciples of all the nations. Not make converts, which is many times and oftentimes what we produce is just people that come to Christ, but then it never progresses from there. He says, make disciples. There's a a real striking difference between a convert and a disciple. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is one whose life is set aside. They understood it in Judaism much better than we understand it. Because young men would be given a rabbi to follow and to become a disciple of. And they would learn actually all of their academics in this way as well. And typically, most young men would be sent back to their fathers at a young age because they didn't have what it would take to be a rabbi. They would say, you're a good boy. I've taught you some math. I've taught you some Hebrew. I've taught you some basic life things. Now go learn your father's trade. And they would spend the rest of their life learning their father's trade. But some, the cream of the crop, would be taken by that rabbi to replace him. And they would become his disciple. And they would follow that rabbi everywhere. That was the 12 disciples of Jesus. They understood that. They understood why they were following Jesus. To become like him. To do what he did. To act like he acted. To believe the way he believed. It was a big deal to be a disciple. It's not a passive thing. It's a lifelong ambition. Until that rabbi died. And then that young man would take his place. Well, we know that Jesus died, but he rose again. He lives forevermore. And so we continue to follow him. We continue to pursue him. We continue to want to be like him. And it never ends. The discipleship process And as we're on our journey, as we're following Jesus, we bring people with us. That's our calling, is to make disciples, to go into all the world. We have this perception, though, that i that's something you do in another country. I remember when missionaries would come to visit the church that I got saved at, and it was always dreaded. You know, they would come on Sunday night, and they had the old slides, and the overhead projector, and they were super boring speakers, and... You know, we always thought missionaries must be guys that wanted to be pastors but couldn't hack it. You know, because these guys are just snoozers. And they always had like some old suit that you could tell a pastor like handed down to them or whatever. and It didn't quite fit right. and It was like corduroy and it was like, oh man, but you got to go to be nice, you know. So you show up and this guy's, here's my secretary, Sally. Um, 
Yeah, next slide, please. Uh, here we are in the jungle. Uh, I'm going to take Bibles. Uh, like an hour later, you're just like, oh, Lord, you know. And that was your perception of what a missionary is. And God bless those guys. They're not all like that. But that isn't what missions is in its entirety. Missions is what we do wherever we're at. It's who we are. This is our mission field right here in Prineville, in Crook County, in Central Oregon. We're missionaries. We're called to go out and to make disciples. You don't have to get on a plane and and go to the middle of Africa. You don't have to go get malaria over in the Philippines or go freeze to death in Russia. You don't have to do that to be a missionary. That's part of missions, and it's awesome. I love foreign missions. But just as much as I love foreign missions, I love local missions because it's all bringing the good news of the gospel to people who are dying without it. Wherever you're at, wherever I'm at, we're missionaries. And we ought to be engaged in that. We're called to make disciples of all the nations. So it kind of stands to reason that you would start with your own nation or your own neighborhood, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now obviously this is speaking of bringing people to Christ and baptizing them in water. I think it also speaks of baptizing your nation, your neighborhood, your city with the gospel, bringing the gospel to people. Wherever we're at, we are bringing the gospel. We're evangelists. We're missionaries wherever we go. And it's interesting that Jesus would would say baptizing them. He doesn't say go and, and do an altar call necessarily. He doesn't say go and have people raise their hands. He says go and baptize. Do you know that until the the ministry of Charles Finney, which we won't get into his theology and what I think about that, but until the ministry of Charles Finney, that altar calls really weren't a part of evangelism. Not that altar calls are bad, but if you look at the New Testament, you look at the apostolic style of evangelism. You remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? And Philip was there with him and he brought him all the way through the the Old Testament, teaching him about Jesus in the Old Testament. He showed him Isaiah 53 and he told him about the cross. And this Ethiopian eunuch said, what do I need to do? And Philip brought him down into the water and he baptized him right there. That was always the mark of conversion and of salvation was baptism. If you want to get saved, come on up. We're going to baptize people right now. There's nothing wrong with the altar call. There's nothing wrong with a, with a sinner's prayer. But I think sometimes we've given people the, the false sense that that is what makes you a Christian. And it isn't. Even Moody said that he was so bummed because he preached the gospel this one time and and. He sent everybody home, and that night was the great Chicago fire, and, and all the, the places burned down, and tons of people died, and a lot of people that were there at that event died. And he always beat himself up saying that he should have given people an opportunity to respond. Here's the thing, though. If they understood what he said, and they believed it in their heart, and they confessed it with their mouth as they walked out the door, they were saved. They didn't have to come forward. They have to raise their hand or say a prayer. See, we, we've kind of got that mixed up a little bit. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. 
And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Teaching them. This last part of describing what it means to, to make a disciple. Teaching them. That's why we place a great deal of emphasis on teaching the Bible. Because that's important into making a disciple. It's teaching. We need that. We need to be taught. We need to be instructed in the Word of God. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a disciple, it will come through diligent study of the Word of God. People who are immature in their walk, people who are struggling in their walk, people who are not really disciples, they're not following Jesus, so they believe in Him, but there's no relationship, there's no pursuit. It's because they're not students of the Word. If you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, immerse yourself in the Word of God. Pray that God would give you a hunger for His Word. First thing that we do as a response to the cross is believe, you guys. A second thing we do is we go and we make disciples. We baptize people, whether literally or figuratively, into the gospel. We teach them the Word of God. And then the last thing I want to look at, the last response to the cross, is to take. If you look at Mark chapter 8, verse 34, just over a couple pages... Jesus is predicting his death and resurrection again. He did this all the time. The disciples never believed him. He'd be like, yeah, I'm going to die, be raised again. They'd be like, that, that isn't true, Jesus. That won't happen. That can't happen to you. Or they would just hear him say, I'm going to die. And then he, you know, they would start shouting and then he would say and be resurrected the third day and they wouldn't hear that part. But Jesus kept telling them this and they, they kept denying it because it wasn't part of their agenda. What they thought was going to happen is that Jesus was going to be the king. Jesus was going to overthrow the evil Romans. Isn't this going to be awesome? Which is kind of interesting in modern day politics, isn't it? When the church wants to make Jesus a king once again. When we, when we want to evangelize the world through our political structure and system. It was never intended to be that way. We're not going to win the world to Jesus by getting a Republican in the White House. Or if you're on the other side of the coin, we're not going to win the world to Jesus by getting a Democrat into the White House. It's not how it's going to be done. I'm not saying go, don't go vote. I'm not saying don't be engaged in politics. But we try to make Jesus king still, don't we? We think he's going to accomplish everything we want him to accomplish in a, in a political sense, in a national sense. And that's what they were trying to do. Jesus, you're going to answer all of our desires. You're the king. You're the Messiah. And they forgot about the fact that the first coming of the Messiah would be to die and to suffer and to take the sin of the world upon himself. And they had completely lost sight of that truth. And so when Jesus said he was going to the cross, their mindset was, look, that will severely interrupt our plans. And Jesus said, he began to teach them that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the priests, the scribes. He spoke these words openly, but Peter rebuked him, and Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Make us mindful of, of your things, Lord, not our things. And as we respond to the cross, that's exactly what we want to be, is mindful of the things of God. And the third way that we do that. A third way that we respond to the cross appropriately is by taking. Taking what? By following Jesus. By taking up our cross. He says, look at verse 34. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself 
Take up his cross and follow me. Jesus tells us right here how we should respond to the cross. And how is it? How is it that we should respond? By just going about our normal life? By just doing whatever makes us feel good? By being selfish and self-centered? No. He says the response to the cross is to follow me like a disciple would. And here's how you follow me. Deny yourself. Did Jesus do that? I think he did. I think he stepped out of heaven or something. All the glory of heaven. Took on human flesh. Walked around in anonymity for 30 years. Building stuff out of wood. Just a guy in Nazareth. Then he started his public ministry. Did he deny himself in his public ministry? I think he did. It wasn't about him. Jesus served people all the time. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Somehow or another, though, we've taken that to say, that's good for Jesus, but now me, Christians, I've come to be served, to have all my needs met, to be pampered and comfortable and have people tell me how great I am. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, which I'm assuming is our desire because we're here on a Sunday morning to hear from God. We want to follow him. That's our heart. So here's how we do it. It isn't found in the latest Christian self-help book. It's not in a seminar. There's no pill to take. He says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Deny yourself. It's not easy to do, is it? It's not easy to step out of whatever that heaven is for you that Jesus stepped out of. Out of your comfort zone, out of your selfish, self-centered little bubble that, that we easily exist in. It's not easy to step out of that and to start to think about other people. But when we do, when we do, it's an amazing thing, you guys. It's an amazing thing. And we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus continues to tell them how it is they're going to bring the Great Commission to pass. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit comes upon them, then they will be his witnesses, he says. And if we want to be his witness, if we want to be all that we can be for Jesus and for the gospel, it will come by allowing the Holy Spirit to work his work in us, by allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us and to overflow us. And when we do that, when we do that, it will come through a crucified life. You see, if we want to take the gospel of a crucified God to a lost and dying world, if we want to take a gospel of a crucified Savior, it will only come, it will only be received if it's flowing through crucified vessels. It takes both of those elements for us to be effective disciple makers, effective instruments that bring glory to God. We have to have the right message which is a crucified Savior. Paul said, I want to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We've got to have the right message. Not some message of our own making. Not some watered-down gospel that doesn't include the cross and doesn't talk about sin. That isn't going to do anything for anybody. I mean, it sounds good. All of these inventions of man sound really good, and it's nothing more than religion. We got to have the right message, but we also have to have the right messenger. You guys, it takes a crucified life. Apart from that, we are an offense and a danger to the kingdom of God and to the gospel. We're dangerous. We're ineffective. We'll produce no fruit. It takes a crucified messenger to bring a crucified gospel. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him.
And when we do that, all of a sudden, the possibilities for ministry and the possibility for serving other people are just everywhere. And we, we didn't realize them before. We didn't, we didn't think about them. We didn't notice them because we were so focused on ourselves. And so when I get up in the morning, I'm focused on myself and I'm going to get ready. And then I get in the car and I'm focused on myself and I'm going to get myself to work. And man, if somebody's in my way, I don't care about them. I don't think about them. I'm ticked at them. I'm cussing at them. I'm yelling at them. When I get to work, all I'm focused on is getting my eight hours in and getting out of here. So don't talk to me. I don't want to deal with you. I don't want to have to spend time with you. I don't want to you know, minister to people or serve people. I just want to sit in the back of the lunchroom, eat my lunch, and get back to work so I can get out of this miserable hole. And hopefully I'll get my two weeks vacation where I can go and serve and pamper myself some more. And we live our life that way. We get home and dinner better be on the table. Things better be taken care of. And then I'm going to sit and I'm going to watch TV and I'm going to think about myself and try to just escape from my problems. Then I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to get up and I'm going to do it all over again. And then I wonder why I'm depressed. Well, it's not real hard to figure out. That is depressing. I just talk about it and I'm depressed. I just talk about it and I want to go kill myself. That's not life as God intended it. That's a nightmare. That's a joke. Yeah, but you don't know my life. My job stinks. The people I work with are jerks. My neighborhood's horrible. I don't like my house. My car doesn't run very well. You'd be ticked off too. You'd be thinking about yourself too. Well, look. Don't look at me. Don't look at anybody else. Think about Jesus. Jesus didn't have a whole lot to find happiness in from a selfish human perspective. And yet he always seemed to be filled with joy. He always seemed to be stoked to be around people. He always loved people. He served people. He took time for people. And when we do that, when we follow Jesus and we deny ourselves and we take up the cross, all of a sudden there's these opportunities that, that we never even thought of before. And we all of a sudden we think about the fact, man, I live around all kinds of people and I don't even talk to them. And there's that single mom that lives across the street and her yard is just overgrown. There's weeds everywhere and there's toys that are broken and their kid's bike doesn't work. And But man, I'm focused on my life. There's nobody to minister to, Lord. There's nobody to talk to about you. It's too hard. Well, yeah, if you've got the four spiritual laws in a Bible and you're going to go door to door, who wants to do that? I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to go and mow the single mom's yard. Bring some cookies to that old lady that lives by herself down the road. Minister to those kids that live in the apartments down the street that nobody wants to talk to because they're dirty. There's opportunities all around us. There's opportunities in our high school and our junior high. How about the kids that nobody else wants to talk to? It's easy to be friends with the people everybody wants to be friends with, with the popular kids, with the kids that dress nice. And I've already tried to instill this into my daughter. I remember the first day of school, she came home. I don't have any friends. Nobody likes me there. Kayla and I said, there's going to be some kids there that nobody's going to like because they don't dress nice or maybe they're not that smart or maybe they're dirty. You make friends with them. You guys, there's opportunities all around us to serve people, to make disciples, to bring the gospel. They may not be the opportunities that we want in our flesh, but when we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross, there they are. And you've got to want it. You've got to want it. It's not just going to plop down in your lap. You've got to want it. You've got to want to go and serve people 
or serve at the church or serve in some ministry more than you do watching that television show. You got to want to do those things more than you do playing in some softball league. You got to want those things more than you want your kids to have everything that you never had. That's a lie. It's not going to make your kids happy. You want to know what's going to make your kids happy in life and be successful in life? You want to know what's going to draw your family closer together? It isn't involving them in every conceivable activity under the sun. What will make your kids successful people and make your kids successful followers of Jesus is by bringing them along to serve other people, to get their eyes off themselves and to serve somebody else, to give, to deny themselves. You got to start teaching kids that at a very young age, especially in the United States, where we tell our kids that the world revolves around them. And then we wonder why at 16, 17, 18 years old, they're spoiled brats. Well, there's no wonder. You've given them everything they've ever wanted. You've never made them lift a finger. You don't make them serve. They can come to church if they want to. They can be involved in this if they want to. Guys, bring your kids along with you. Start serving people. Start showing Jesus' love to the people in your sphere of influence. And evangelism will just spill out of that. People will want it. What did Jesus say? They'll know that you're my disciples because you sit in your house all night and watch TV. They'll know that you're my disciples because you go to church on Sunday. They'll know that you're my disciples because you go on lavish vacations. They'll know that you're my disciples because you have a good job. They'll know that you're my disciples because you're always out in the garage tinkering around with stuff. No. They'll know that you're my disciples for your love for one another. So whatever you're doing, it's got to involve people, first of all. But whatever you're doing, whether it's playing sports, whether it's hunting, and you bring that non-Christian guy along with you that you really don't like that much, and he's not that great of a hunter, but you bring him along and show him the love of Christ, or any number of things that we do for people, and they see love in that, and they see love demonstrated between us, that speaks volumes, but it comes through denying ourselves, taking up our cross, which is death to self, and following him. Apart from that, we will be sterile as Christians, fruitless, purposeless, directionless, and that's not what I want for my life. I, I know that's not what I want for the church. I hope it's not what you want. It's not the kind of people that, that we are going to effectively reach this city with. We're going to effectively reach this city, you guys, with crucified people who are willing to deny themselves and love people and serve people. And it starts today. It starts right where you're at today. It won't start when your circumstances change. If you say that, then it will never happen. It will never happen. You're too young. You're too old. You're too busy. You're too tired. You're too broke. Just keep saying that because it'll be something else. Maybe you're too broke today, but soon you'll be too rich. Too much money. I got to deal with it all. I got to work hard. Oh, I'm too young. I, I, got, I got things I, I need to do. I'm in school. I'm busy. If you don't start serving Jesus today, you never will. Starts today. Young people start serving Jesus in your schools. You have a huge, huge opportunity to serve Jesus right where you're at. Old people, that's why I love some of the older folks in our church who are serving Jesus. They're not saying, you know what? I've done all that. Now it's for you younger people. No, they're serving the Lord. 
Some of you people that are my age, 30s, in your 40s, oh, I've got little kids and I'm busy and I'm working hard. My, my career's taken off. You have no better opportunity to serve Jesus than right now. Wherever you're at, be creative. Think about what you can do to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. It's the appropriate response to the cross. Let's stand and pray together. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.